Who is the greatest economist of all time? Today on The Curious Task, I'm talking to Tyler Cowen. Welcome to The Curious Task, where we talk about philosophy, politics, and economics from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Matt Bufton, and today my guest is Tyler Cowen. Tyler is the Hobart L. Harris Chair in Economics at George Mason University. He blogs at Marginal Revolution, one of the world's most widely read blogs on economics. And he's the author of GOAT, Who is the Greatest Economist of All Time and Why Does It Matter? I always like to dive right in with the question at hand. And Tyler, you've done us a favor of making the title of your book a question. So I'm just going to ask you straight up, who is the greatest economist of all time? In the old DC comics, there's a race between Superman and Flash. And they promise you there'll be a winner. And the winner is Flash. I can give you three winners. The first and most fundamental great economist is Adam Smith. The great economist who was keenest and sharpest on addressing particular questions and problems was Milton Friedman. But my personal favorite for his depth and breadth was John Stuart Mill. All three of those, of course, are liberals and classical liberals. That's not an accident. I think you could give Hayek the award for having written the single greatest economics article of all time. Wonderful. We're going to dive down into each of those economists and a few others that you mention in your book. But before we do that, I think we should maybe ask the, uh, the second question in your book title, which is, why does it matter? I wrote this book in part as a way of generating case studies for how to appreciate talent. Who were these people? What were their intellectual, intellectual strengths? What were their weaknesses? What were their mistakes? So they're case studies we all can learn from, but it's also a way to learn ideas. I find people often learn abstract ideas better when they're bundled with the particular human being. It's why economists or media pundits become celebrities. And this is a way of bundling ideas to those individuals. But also, I've just been reading and rereading these works my whole life, and I wanted to come to terms with what I think about them. So, it's great. You say you write this book as a fan rather than as an academic. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about how that shapes the style of the book? Well, the book is all about my enthusiasms. So it's, it's a passionate book. It's a book full of emotions. The judgments are ultimately quite subjective. And I just tell you what I think, you know, is wrong with the given economist. And I tell the reader about my personal meetings with Friedman and Hayek, my very subjective impressions. I just come flat out and say, I thought Hayek had become a grumpy old man. Now, in an academic book, you wouldn't really say that. In an academic book, you wouldn't give your thoughts on what it meant that Keynes was president of the Eugenics Society for eight years in Britain, uh, or any number of other issues. So this is a book about humans, and I try to write about humans the way we as people, in fact, talk about humans. I think that's better, not worse. In the book, you mentioned there's two sort of things that shape what you're doing with this book. One's a book about basketball. One's a calendar. Those would probably seem quite odd to many people. Can you tell us about those? Well, Bill Simmons wrote this very long book. It's just called The Book of Basketball. And as you might expect, if you know Simmons, you know, books about the NBA, they're written from the point of view of fans, typically. And they can be quite interesting. And Simmons is a highly analytical thinker. And he attempted to rate basketball players, like the top 100 players of all time, how good they are and why. And I just enjoyed that book a lot. I thought I should try to write a book like this, but about economics. Now, the calendar story is much older. 
When I was a teenager, in fact, I owned this copy of a calendar that had photos of economists. And I just used to look at it a lot of times. It intrigued me. Well, what did Edgeworth look like? Uh, what did Keynes look like? Uh, the people where we don't have photos, the sketches or portraits of them, what, what were they like? And they become real people to you. And you, you start thinking the life, the work, what they did in politics, how does it all fit together? And that calendar of photographs, it just entranced me for years. You and I have both spent a lot of time in libertarian circles, and I think some people talk about our interest in the personalities as a sort of flaw. Behind me in the background, I've got a picture of Hayek, uh, and uh, and I've seen people on you know, T-shirts with Hayek and Smith and Friedman. I have many of those things. I've got an Adam Smith tie. So to some people, that's a criticism, that we are sort of making them into also like cult of personality figures rather than just looking strictly at the ideas. Do you have a response to that? Well, in the book I wrote, I cover Keynes and Malthus. I hope to write a future monograph about Marx. So I think it's important to consider individuals from a lot of different points of view. And maybe it is a human flaw that we think about ideas through the lens of individual human beings, but it's a flaw that's not going away. So I say, let's have a better version of it rather than a worse. You know, should you have behind you a picture of Hayek or Joseph Stalin? What's your pick? I'll take hike every time. I think you know that. There you go. Wonderful. All right. Before we dive into evaluating all of your candidates for the GOAT, can you tell us a little bit about your criteria in the book for determining the GOAT? The person should have done something in theory and something in empirical work, something important in micro, something in macro. They should have been influential, and they should have intersected in a significant way with real-world events of their time. Now, to satisfy all of those, it really does rule out almost everyone. But those felt to me like re reasonable standards, uh, that if you, say, missed big on one of them, you still might be one of the 10 greatest economists ever. But for me, you wouldn't be GOAT. It's like a basketball player who doesn't rebound. Well, they might be highly valuable. Uh, but Steph Curry, for all his shooting prowess, he's the greatest shooter of all time. He's not the greatest player of all time. All right. I'm going to turn first to Milton Friedman, who I believe is the first uh, economist you talk about in the book. What is the case for Milton Friedman as the greatest economist of all time? On empirical work, he revolutionized our understanding of monetary policy by looking at actual data about money and the demand for money and national income. And he restored money and monetary policy to its deservedly central place in macro. Uh, he had major contributions to microeconomics, to the theory of consumption, the role of wealth in macro behavior. He advised central banks. He was a central figure, maybe the central figure, behind the movement to market-oriented reforms and the fall of communism. He built up a major department at University of Chicago, which led to many Nobel Prizes. Uh, there's really a lot in Friedman's favor. And he was right about most things, right? That has to count. Absolutely. One negative that I think a lot of people might think of quite quickly when they think of Milton Friedman is his role in being an advisor to the Chilean government. What would your response or how would you address that issue? Well, I cover that at length in the book. In fact, what happened is Friedman went there. He gave a few talks. He also told the Chileans it would be better if you were democratic, a point he's insisted on his whole career. And he left. He didn't do anything sinister. In the contemporary world, hundreds, thousands of economists go to China 
talk to the government, advise the CCP. No one cares. People get so bent out of shape, you know, over Friedman in Chile. Uh, I think he was a good guy. What he did was fine. I hope he had some influence over the better things they did. Uh, he in no way supported the Pinochet dictatorship. And I even went back and looked at some Chilean newspapers, which I read in Spanish, giving their account of what Friedman didn't said. And it's perfectly fine. Uh, the world doesn't know that. It's a great tragedy. Indeed. Maybe a surprising negative, because I think the, the discussion of Chile is, is quite uh, you know, obvious, but a surprising negative you um, struck against him was his memoir. Tell us a little bit about why you looked at his memoir that he wrote with his wife, Rose, as a, as a small negative. Well, he, he and Rose wrote this book, Two Lucky People. And of course, you're not sure how much he wrote, how much Rose wrote, but parts of it, it's indicated who wrote what. It's just a very boring book. In some way, I don't think Milton was that self-reflective. Uh, he didn't have that final level of depth that you find in Miller Smith or even Keynes. And the memoir a bit shows that. He is full of energy, always unfailingly polite, smiles on TV, is devastating and cutting in debate, and just kept on going without limit, without stopping, uh, to his credit. But there, there is some level at which say, the complexities you find in Hayek, uh, you don't get that same Germanic continental depth in Friedman. And that is a strike against him. As go, he's still, again, at the top, top, top tier of economists. Of course, and all the people we're going to talk about today, you regard them quite highly as economists, but of course, we're trying to figure out one or, or maybe a handful uh, who to qualify for the title of greatest. So if someone shouldn't read Friedman's autobiography to learn about his life, because that's you know not that great to read. Is there a book out there you would recommend for someone who wanted to read one book and learn about the life and impact of Milton Friedman? The new Jennifer Burns book is A Plus for Quality. I did my own podcast with her. You can Google my name and hers. It's very long. It's wonderful. And I think it gives you quite a full picture of Friedman the man and Friedman the economist and Friedman the public policy figure. One of the best books of the year. Wonderful. I haven't made it to it yet, but that book is definitely on my to-read list. You mentioned you have some biases against Milton Friedman. What are those? I think even in areas when I agreed with him, he treated matters as a little too simple or he was a little too dismissive of critics. So something like educational vouchers, which I have always favored, I still favor, but I've seen a lot of studies come out that indicate their gains are fairly marginal. In some cases, the gains seem to be zero. You're just reshuffling classes of smart kids. It's not clear how much learning is going up. Uh, I don't feel that he ever responded to that evidence or took it that seriously. For him, it seemed almost a priori that vouchers just had to be much better. Uh, so that's a way in which I think he ended up becoming too dogmatic mentioned earlier you, this is sort of a fan appreciation. In some ways, there's some quite personal stories in the book, which I really enjoyed. One thing that really surprised me was you mentioned you only met Friedman twice. I would have thought you would have had much more interaction with him. Am I wrong to be surprised by that? It seems to me like you would have traveled in overlapping circles for at least a couple of decades, and I would have thought you would have met more often. Well, I should have met him more. Obviously, that's my fault. But a lot of that time he was in Vermont, where I had no particular reason to go. You know, these were the later Friedman years. And at, at times he's out at Hoover, 
I just wasn't on the West Coast much. So I, I was traveling a great deal, but I was more interested in going to Europe and, and learning, say, history and culture of Europe. Uh, I think I did make a mistake, not just Milton Friedman. You could list, you know, more than 100 people or things. Like I never heard Miles Davis in concert. That was just an enormous error. Uh, and you could go on with that. I'm glad I met him twice, is what I'll say. That's great. I never had a chance to meet or hear Milton Friedman speak live, and I was sort of getting into this world of ideas and organizations just at the time he died. So I just missed him. But I will say that perhaps I'm approaching middle age. I look back and I think like you do about concerts, comedians, sporting events I could have gone to and reasonably been there. And I think, why didn't I make the effort? But I'll say this about Friedman, that meeting him was not all that different than seeing him on TV or now YouTube. There was one Milton Friedman, and it's what everyone got. Maybe Rose got something different. Uh, but there wasn't the sense of, now I've met the man, I have this additional insight or, or, or dimension into his thought. He was remarkably consistent across media and how he presented himself. So if you had met him, I, I don't think your inner mental life would be so much richer than if you watch him on YouTube. Interesting. That's great. I'm going to close out the uh, segment here on Milton Friedman. You've made, started out making the case why he should be considered as the GOAT. But, of course, in the book, you make cases for and against all of your candidates. Why shouldn't Friedman be the GOAT? I think on originality, he is a fair degree behind Hayek or Adam Smith or even Keynes, uh, Malthus, all the other candidates. So his work on monetary policy was in some ways a reprise of Irving Fisher. I don't mean that as a criticism, but this dazzlingly original, brilliant doctrine, Friedman doesn't quite have the way the others did. He encapsulated, summarized, put forward the best of classical liberal thought and earlier monetary economics. Right. Going to move on now to John Maynard Keynes. What's the case for him as the GOAT? Well, let me first say I'm not a Keynesian. I'm much more libertarian, so I'm not going to end up siding with Keynes. But if you try to view this maybe more objectively isn't the word, but a bit removed from my personal lens. And you just look at influence on economic policy and macro policy. Keynes is really at the top in that area. He had influence over the discussions and subsequent processing of the Treaty of Versailles. He had influence over the Indian currency system imposed by Britain. He was an important figure between the two world wars. He with help from others, but really did design the Bretton Woods post-war monetary system and the notion of fiscal policy as a means of combating depressions. He hardly invented, but of course, he's the main carrier of that idea. He also just offhand in the early 20s wrote what is maybe the clearest and best exposition of monetarism, you know, way before Friedman. He wrote an interesting book on probability. So he has a lot to his credit. From my personal point of view, he's just a bit too wrong for me to pick him. And I don't think on microeconomics he quite had a major sound contribution. But there's a lot you can say in his favor. One of the things you mentioned is that it's possible that Keynes isn't even primarily an economist. Can you talk a bit about that? He was a public figure. He was a lover of the arts. He was a raconteur. He's probably the only human being to have both impressed and charmed both Hayek and Bertrand Russell. Anyone who does that is extraordinarily impressive and more than an economist. 
I strongly suspect Keynes would have been the most fun to hang out with of all the names on our list. It just seems he had this magnetic radiant presence that he used with policymakers, the public, fellow economists. Again, part of an extraordinarily impressive record. Wonderful. I was going to say there, you, you may not side with Keynes, but you do say that you would like to hang out with Keynes more than any of these others. And that sort of struck me as, as interesting, the idea that the chance to ask Adam Smith or someone like that a question, but do you think the fun evening would be to hang out with Keynes? Tell me more about that. My intuition, again, I could be wrong, I've never hung out with Keynes, is that if you spent some time with him, he would be quite forthcoming, and you'd come away with a very different impression of Keynes from whatever you started with. Uh, Mill, in a way, interests me the most of all the figures, but from contemporary accounts, he comes across as rigid, and you would get a regurgitation of John Stuart Mill in a rigid way, but maybe his great facility was in his pen and not his presence. So, Keynes, yeah, Keynes is the one I want to meet. Wonderful. You mentioned, and I think Keynes is unique in this among the people you consider, that he actually considered himself the GOAT of economics and sort of tried to think through this through and arrived at the idea that he was. So what's Keynes' case for himself as the greatest economist? If you read Keynes's essay on Marshall carefully, Keynes has a passage where he says, like, to be the greatest economist of all time, you have to satisfy a set of criteria. They're, they're listed in the book in quotation from Keynes. And when you read through the list, it's very clear to me Keynes is talking about himself, but just not mentioning himself. Influence over policymakers uh, of relevance to the world. And he said, well, Marshall didn't have all this. And that's correct. Marshall didn't. And Keynes did. So my two reluctances with Keynes is his, his main contribution he presented as a general theory. But I think it's true only part of the time that fiscal policy works. And then on microeconomics, he was consistently pretty sloppy. And to be sloppy on micro, this is not a partisan judgment, but Jacob Viner knew the same. A lot of economists in Keynes's time knew the same. Uh, that is a big mark against someone. And Milton Friedman in micro really was never sloppy. Not like hardly ever, never. Talk in the Milton Friedman portion about his uh, dealings with the Chilean government, sort of addressing the question, do we need to cancel Milton Friedman, as it were? But you also talk about this for each of these economists. Is there a case for canceling Keynes? There's a big case for canceling Keynes. To be clear, I don't want to do it. But if you're going to play that game, Keynes oversaw the German language preface to the general theory published for the Nazis. And he just says, oh, my, my recommendations are better suited for a system like yours. That's pretty awful in my view. Keynes was head of the Eugenics Society in Britain for eight years. What he did with that presidency, we don't know. But I, I don't think there's a great reading of that available at all. Eight years is a long time. Keynes also was in print anti-Semitic. Now, people said at the time he never was anti-Semitic to the Jews he knew in terms of how he treated him. But still, he was abusive toward Jews in a number of things he wrote. So there's at least three big things where Keynes is pretty cancelable. You know, I say judge people by what they did that was best and look past that and appreciate them, but it's definitely there. It's not, not really contestable. It seems if we're talking about uh, your figures, certainly in history, but perhaps even you know, in today's context, everybody probably has done something that they could be cancelled for. There's a case for cancelling almost anybody, certainly people who have large public records and, and uh, have made a lot of comments on things. 
King's but Milton Friedman an... is very hard to cancel. So he mm -hmm. did oppose the 1965 Civil Rights Act, uh, which in some circles is cancelable. But other than that, I think there is literally nothing you can find for canceling Friedman. He was such a consistently positive messenger. There's just nothing on the record. And he wrote and said a lot, right? Yep, absolutely. Also, Adam Smith, you cannot cancel. There's no footnote in Smith where you can haul him before the faculty senate or whatever. And he yeah. was against slavery. He called it brutal. He was against how you know the Europeans treated the Native Americans in the New World, had a very perceptive account of that. Across the board, maybe libertarian is too strong a word, but he was pro-liberty, pro-tolerance, extremely humane in just the right way. Yeah. Point taken. There's some people it's very hard to cancel. I was going to ask you, there are people who you know seem like there's a lot of people who could be canceled, and yet we certain, see certain names that come up. This happens to certain historical figures. They fall out of favor for these reasons. I'm not aware of that happening with Keynes. Do you have any theories about why certain people, uh, we look at them, we cancel them, and we, of course, the collective uh, you know, modern society, other people seem to get a bit of a free pass, as it were? It was broadly known at the time that Keynes was gay, and that was a time when it was extremely difficult to be gay and a well-known public figure. Alan Turing, as you know, ended up chemically castrated and after that later killed himself. So why did Keynes get away with that and Alan Turing didn't? I don't know. It's a very interesting question. It, Keynes's personal radiance, political connections, networking probably had a lot to do with it, but I don't think that fully explains the difference. Keynes simply got away with a lot. Now, I'm glad he got away with it, if that's the right term. But still, once a lot of what Keynes did, even by the standards of his time, while writing that preface, you know, for Nazi Germany, uh, was not a popular thing to do in the Britain of Keynes's time. But it was only in German, and he, he got away with many things. You mentioned your two big strikes against Keynes. Is there anything else you want to add to the case to not name Keynes as the GOAT? Well, one test I apply in the book is I look at the major goat contenders, and except for Hayek, they all wrote about India or dealt with India in some significant way. And I just use that as a quick like thought experiment. If you have to write about an environment that you're not very familiar with, how do you do? Uh, Friedman does extremely well. He visited India twice, but was not an expert, wrote two very perceptive memos about India. Keynes is interesting. So he comes up with a currency system for India. Maybe our view of that now would be mixed, but it's at least a smart idea. But he didn't seem to understand the British were doing some very bad things to India and perhaps should think of getting out. So I don't know if that's a, a big reason. But again, if you just compare him to Friedman, Friedman was way ahead of him on India. And move on now to the gentleman pitcher behind me. What's the case for Friedrich Hayek as the goat? Well, Hayek's best articles, I think, are the greatest articles ever written. Uh, the best one, as I'm sure you know, is called Use of Knowledge in Society. It's online for free if anyone wants to read it. By the way, my book is online for free. Just Google Tyler Cowan Goat. Uh, you don't have to buy it. You can't, in fact, buy it on Amazon or anywhere. So the notion of the price system how it coordinates economic activity, disseminates information, why central planning is impossible. Hayek laid all that out in a few articles so brilliantly and elegantly. It's probably the finest contribution of all of economics. So to have the best articles ever, 
I would just say you're immediately in contention. Wonderful. You say in the book that Hayek's case is perhaps the most imbalanced of all the people you consider. Tell us more about that. Well, if you get past Hayek's best articles, I still think there's a lot in his favor. I just think it's a pretty severe drop-off. Now, that's partly a reflection of how good the best articles are. But if you read, say, Constitution of Liberty, which is supposed to be Hayek's masterwork, I don't actually think it's a great book. I think it's an interesting and stimulating book that is not really coherent, and he never got around to really being clear, what's his standard? Is it liberty and rights? Is it utility? Is he a historicist? Is it something else? You just got this big Germanic glop of a thought block that didn't quite cohere. So I think Hayek's trade cycle theory is interesting. Uh, Sensory order is a very mixed book. A lot of it doesn't make sense. But just there's a big drop-off for Hayek. Were Hayek's attacks on scientism a mistake? They had some validity at the time because people were applying scientism to everything, including central planning. But I feel he went way too far that there's something like a scientific mode of reasoning that is behind a lot of what governments do, gathering data and measuring and estimating things. And it does make policy better. And overall, you want more of it. And if you think of something like Operation Warp Speed during the pandemic, that was highly scientistic in Hayek's terms. It was a great idea. It went quite well. So I think he underrated the virtues of scientism. Or take Israel now, trying to defend themselves. Oh, well, they use advanced mathematics, operations research, game theory, artificial intelligence, all kinds of highly scientific methods in the service of their national defense. Uh, putting aside the politics of what you think about what's going on, but just the simple question, does it work? I mean, it does, right? One of the things you mentioned in the book is Hayek's influence on the business world, uh, and being, that being in excess of what any other of the candidates have. Talk a little bit about his influence on business. Well, there's so many CEOs, and I mean very well-known, influential CEOs, who really have been influenced heavily by Hayek. Charles Koch would be one, John Mackey of Whole Foods, Patrick Collison of Stripe. I think I named 12 or 15 in the book. But none of the other GOAT contenders really can say that. Certainly plenty of business people are influenced by Friedman and Keynes, but they don't pull a whole worldview out of it, like they're politically influenced on some issues. But Hayek can reshape how people think about everything, and that's a lot in his favor. Do we need to cancel Hayek? Well, again, I don't want to, but when he was quite old, his assistant, after Hayek passed, wrote a memoir talking about her years cleaning up his bedpan. And she sure makes Hayek sound like quite prejudiced and nasty and grumpy and misogynistic and racist. Now, how much can you rely on a single memoir? It's always hard to say, but you read the memoir. It's very detailed to me. You know, I believed it, I have to say. I'm not absolutely sure it's a fair representation. She mostly is on Hayek's side. Like uh, some of the things she relates Hayek is saying, she seems to agree with. It's not like some of these articles where, oh, they're out to smash this guy. So uh, Hayek became a, a grumpy Viennese old man, is my guess. I was interested in that biography of Hayek. I'd never even heard of it before, and I felt quite embarrassed about that. And then when I read further, I realized that it actually seems quite a hard thing to find. 
Do you know if it's become any easier to find as a result of you discussing it in this book? Uh, not that I know of, but I haven't tried. Uh, but simply Googling it uh, when, at the time didn't get me anywhere. I had to have people get it for me through back channels and the like. Well, if anyone listening knows how to get a copy, I would love to receive one in my inbox. Close out the section on Hayek. You've talked a little bit about some of his shortcomings. Uh, anything else you want to say about the case against not selecting Hayek as the GOAT? Well, he didn't do successful empirical work, right? Uh, the, the strengths are very, very strong. There's a case for him. If you put a lot of weight on really reshaping how people think about everything, he has a claim. I'm not quite there. To me, Friedman is somehow more all-purpose, just more of a better economic thinker. And, of course, they're both classically liberal. So I, I would, with some hesitation, but I think put Friedman over Hayek. I think we're going to cover one more of your candidates before we stop for our break. What is the case for John Stuart Mill as the GOAT? I think Mill had the greatest breadth and depth of thought. If you just look narrowly at economics, I don't think there is a serious case for Mill. His principles treatise, it's a little boring. It's good in many ways, but not GOAT quality. But what Mill wrote on liberty, on utility, how he thought about systems of government, how he thought about the problems of women in his time, slavery, universal franchise. He was just right about most things. And that's worth a lot. He was the best read, I think, of any of these individuals and just extraordinarily thoughtful. And contrary to what some people say, he wasn't close to being a socialist. Uh, he was on some issues more left-wing than I am. But he's very much squarely in the classical liberal tradition. I think a lot of people might be surprised to have Mill included in the economics category. I'm neither an economist nor a philosopher, but I took some courses in both in university, and it was in philosophy where I was reading Mill and, and not economics. Was Mill an economist? Oh, of course. He wrote a great deal about economic subjects. So early in his career as a teenager, I think he's a teenager even, he wrote an essay on macro and money and Say's Law. It's maybe to this day still the best essay on those topics. When does Say's Law hold, not hold? And this is Mill as a teenager. So he's extremely impressive. If you read Mill on taxation, well, he says the rate of tax on capital income should be zero. You know, we should tax consumption and land. This is before economists had more rigorously proved those might be better systems. And those, I think, are, are the correct intuitions. And Mill was there. So on many, many economic issues, Mill basically was just right. And he doesn't get enough credit for that. I think unlike all of the other candidates you discuss, Mill had a career as a politician. What was Mill's career in Parliament like? He was elected to Parliament. He ran. He thought it was a way to have real influence. When Mill was in office, he was never hypocritical. He performed well. He spoke eloquently. He didn't backtrack on other things he had thought or written before. Now, he wasn't reelected. Surprise, surprise. But he behaved with perfect integrity and showed some leadership and was involved in the investigation of Britain's bad behavior in Jamaica and pushed for, you know, greater suffrage and many other good things. And it was entirely admirable. And I count that in his favor. I think Milton Friedman would have been the same way. Uh, Keynes, to me, was always a bit too calculating, like how to maximize influence. Mill stood by what he believed. And I, I like him for that. 
You mentioned in the book that you think the case for Mill has improved since the 1970s. Tell us why that happened. Well, one reason is Mill wrote what I think is still the best work on feminism, which is subjection of women. And that now is increasingly important as an issue as society becomes more feminized. And of all the other go contenders, none in a serious way considered the station of women. So what might have been the biggest issue of their entire society, they said nothing about. And Mill clearly beats everyone on that by a long mile. But also Mill, when it comes to empirical work, he had a notion that causality is quite complex and that the goal of statistics and people doing empirics was to sort out highly complex chains of cause and effect. And that's what econometrics is about today. So even 20 years ago, that wasn't understood as important as it is now. And you read Mill and his books on logic, for instance, and he just saw that very clearly. It's quite remarkable that only now, you know, have we caught up with Mill on causal inference. Is there a case for canceling Mill? There's not much of one. So Mill did favor the British Empire in India. He thought it would be more civilizing. Arguably, that was proven wrong. But I think he had good motives, and he understood that what happened in India really mattered. He was not dismissive of Indians because they were not British or not white. Uh, Mill wrote a pamphlet called England and Ireland, where he expressed his support for keeping England and Ireland together forever. Uh, I don't agree with that. But again, I think it was humanitarian motives. He thought it would go the way England and Scotland as a union had gone. But many Irish people, you know, held a grudge against Mill because of that pamphlet. It's funny what he describes in a way. It's like an early version of the European Union. And the question was, well, is Ireland going to leave this? But England and Ireland, Britain and Ireland were united in a sense until Brexit. And it was the Brits that left. Uh, it's very interesting to read that pamphlet in the light of Brexit. Anything you want to add to the case against selecting Mill? Well, as an economist narrowly defined, he's not close to the top. And that's a big case against him. For breadth and depth and any broader understanding of economics, he's extremely impressive. Wonderful. Thanks very much, Tyler. We're going to take our break there, stop for a quick minute, and we will be back to talk about the final two candidates in the hunt for the greatest economist of all time. The Curious Task is a podcast by the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. Special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Christopher McDonald, Randy T. Simmons, and John Robson. Remember to follow us and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Curious Task. My guest today is Tyler Cowan. We are on the hunt for the greatest economist of all time. We have two candidates of the finalists left to consider. Tyler, tell me about the case for Thomas Malthus as the GOAT. Malthus is maybe the most unusual figure for me to introduce into the discussion. Uh, and maybe the case for Malthus as GOAT is weakest. It relies a lot on one possible outcome, that if environmental problems of whatever sort prove to be our undoing, then I think you would say maybe Malthus was the greatest thinker because he saw 
and understood the biggest problem. Now, I don't think that's going to happen. I'm pretty optimistic. I'm more influenced by Julian Simon, for that matter, more influenced by Friedman and Smith, who just thought, you know, economic growth could continue in a fairly simple fashion. But Malthus pointed out, you don't have to focus on overpopulation, but simply there's different kind of processes, and some things grow very rapidly, and other things grow less rapidly, and sooner or later you get these big imbalances. That's Malthus's big idea. Uh, and I'm not sure it's wrong, and I think it's a very, very important big idea. People focus too much on population. And furthermore, Malthus said, in those situations, there are potential cures, but all of those cures rely too heavily on human virtue, and people are not that virtuous. So to identify human virtue, or lack thereof, as the other central problem, I would say not my view, but, you know, three, four hundred years from now, it could easily turn out to be correct. Keynes is super optimistic about human beings, at least if people like Keynes are left in charge. Friedman is optimistic. Mill depends on his life period, but mostly he's optimistic. Smith is optimistic. Malthus is the one who says, hey, wait a minute. And I'm just not sure that's wrong. So I feel he needs to be in the discussion. Interested in sort of taking a bit of a tangent on that. I know that you're a widely read guy and looked at lots of different fields and knowledgeable. I think if an economist were to, you know, jump forward 400 years from today and find out the Malthist was widely regarded as the greatest economist of all time, that would be really unexpected. Be quite surprised by that. And I think many people will be surprised by his inclusion on your list of finalists. Is there someone that you think is the most surprising person well-regarded today that if you go back one or 200 years, people would not have expected us to think of that person as highly as we do? Well, let me think. You know, going back 100 or 200 years, those are very different things to do. Uh, you can pick think, one of them if you like. <laughs> I think the marginal revolution in economics, you know, Menger, Jevons, Valra which I'm going to write more about in a separate book, if you're wondering why I don't cover them, was seen as extraordinarily important, say, from 1920 through 1990. It was seen as the most important thing. And it's not seen anymore as the most important thing. It's seen as another important thing. And that's a big change. And it happened all of a sudden, and no one talked about it. So... Th that's the biggest shift, I think, in recent times. And if you're, you know, you're talking about what do we think now that people in 1880 didn't realize, well, the early Frenchmen, Corneau and Dupuy, Jules Dupuy, engineers, uh, they were phenomenally ahead of their time and only recognized as such well into the 20th century. That would be another big change. But even in 1873, you know, Valra knows that Corneau and Dupuy are great, but the rest of the world didn't. Right. Right. Back to Malthus. Can you tell us about some of the thinkers that he influenced? Well, Keynes is strongly influenced by Malthus. Another contribution of Malthus is he had an aggregate demand theory of macro downturns, in some ways a lot like Keynes's, less well developed. And again, that's not as much my view as it is Keynes, but it's definitely a contribution. And Malthus had it. Malthus understood supply and demand better than, say, Adam Smith did. He's not always given credit for that. Malthus on monetary theory is highly sophisticated, maybe not above his peers, but as smart as anyone in the world at the time. 
So there's a whole set of other areas where no one talks about Malthus, where it's not enough to make him go, but he's absolutely at the top in a way that he ought to get more credit for. I'm sure this book will do uh, some uh, work towards that case. You mentioned you have a bias against, uh, sorry, a bias towards Malthus. Tell us about that. Well, I just like kind of bugging and provoking people. So if Malthus is not on most lists, I want to put him there. And the fact that I don't really agree with his main worry, I take that as a point of caution, but it makes him a more interesting figure to me. I figure I can learn more from him. So if I reread Milton Friedman today, I enjoy it, but I don't find I learn that much. I feel I absorb that quite early in my life. When I reread Malthus today, I learn more. That says more about me than Malthus, perhaps. But I, I guess I'm counting it for something. Again, this is the book of a fan, right? Absolutely. When you describe yourself that way, it sounds like you've got a contrarian streak. I certainly have that, and I will sometimes say that I think that is sort of the most common unifying feature of all libertarians, that maybe our ideas are driven by this idea to sort of just instinctively go against whatever the received common uh, wisdom is. Am I on to anything there? Yes, you are. And Malthus himself was a great contrarian in his own time, and he was also in many but not always a classical liberal. Classical liberals shouldn't reject him. He's not one in the sense that Smith or Friedman is. Uh, but he was skeptical of government activism in many areas and had sophisticated analyses. I don't agree with all of it. But there's a sense where classical liberals think, well, Malthus is not one of us. It's partly true, but partly not true. Do we need to cancel Malthus? I don't think so. So Malthus taught for the East India Company in their college. So he taught people to run the British Empire. I think that was a mistake. I think he meant well by it. I wouldn't cancel him for it. I'm not aware of anything he wrote that is cancelable, but I would say he talks about primitive societies as if they're primitive. Views on that may differ. I don't think he was a racist. He simply understood them as being at a different stage in development. I think he was earnestly a Christian. Uh, he was anti-slavery, and he, he wanted to do the right thing. So my guess is I would have admired him had I met him. Anything you want to add to the case against Malthus? Well, his contributions aren't broad enough, and his main worries about the world, they just have not yet shown to be true. And my best guess is they won't be true. So I just can't pick Malthus. But at the same time, you need someone with a bit more of the doom and gloom in the running, because it could turn out to be correct. The last of your finalists for the GOAT is someone that I think many people might consider the most obvious choice. I suspect perhaps a plurality, if not a majority of the listeners to this podcast, uh, would have Adam Smith uh, near the top of the list if they were naming their own GOAT. What's the case for Adam Smith? Well, he's the easiest pick. He's the first and most fundamental economist. He was right about most things. He's a father of classical liberal thought, notion of the invisible hand, how market prices work, division of labor, so much of our basic categories come from Smith. So the case there is just very strong and I think really quite obvious. 
Smith probably didn't think of himself as an economist, and when you talk to modern economists with all the mathematical modeling and econometrics, I think a lot of them would perhaps not consider Smith an economist. Should we consider Smith an economist? Well, he was an economic thinker. Of course, he taught classes you know, in letters, in literature, in rhetoric. He gave lectures on astronomy. But his single biggest contribution is economics from beginning to end. I would say theory of moral sentiments is also economics, though in a more indirect way. It's like a kind of behavioral economics. So he has two major books on economics, and he found pretty much founds the whole thing. What more does the guy need to do? Strong case. What does fans of Smith get wrong? Well, there's so many fans of Smith, and Smith has become a kind of political football. There's a whole movement on the left devoted to claiming Smith as a left-leaning thinker. And then there's a counter-movement on the right trying to claim him back, sometimes conservative, libertarian, classical liberal. I actually try to avoid all that in my chapter on Smith. I'm more in the classical liberal camp, but I'm just looking at Smith analytically and I think he was first rate. And unlike what many people stress, he saw national defense as the top priority, not prosperity. And that, to me, makes him a more interesting thinker. And he wrote a great deal in Wealth of Nations about education. So he was multifaceted. What's your favorite of Smith's books? I prefer Wealth of Nations to Theory of Moral Sentiments. It's just better constructed. It's longer. There's more great Smith in there. Theory of Moral Sentiments reads to me like a first book that still needed an editor, though on any particular page, it is more likely brilliant than not. It's an interesting discussion of Wealth of Nations as a response to Plato in your book. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, Plato had this notion that education had to be run, well, Socrates rather. Plato was presenting Socrates. What Plato thought, we're not, we're not sure about. But Socrates presented Education is being needed to be run in a centralized fashion. You have to ban poetry. You have to support martial virtue. And Smith is responding on all those points. Smith says, no, it's professionalization of the army based on division of labor that gets you around a society based on martial virtue. Poetry should be free. We're going to rely on the arts to cultivate people and make them less narrow. Education should be done in a competitive manner, not a centralized manner. And in my reading, Smith is not citing Plato here or Socrates, but I think those are all points directed against the Republic and their responses and their liberal responses. What's the case against Smith as the goat? There's two cases against. One is a bit tongue-in-cheek, but simply, if Smith is the goat, there's no book to be written, right? It's too easy. But the other I take more seriously, and that is if you consider all the names we've been discussing Smith was the worst economist on the whole list. Now, he's the worst because the others learned from him and built on him. That's no shame. But it's a little weird to have the GOAT be the worst economist. So this comes up in sports, like Bill Russell won more titles than LeBron James. But clearly, LeBron James is a much more valuable basketball player. Russell had inferior competition. James learned from Russell, of course, and not vice versa. But at the end of the day, we say James, he's in some sense a better player. So Milton Friedman's just a way better economist than Smith. So that gives me some reluctance in naming Smith. 
the book, you have another five people who do not make the short list, but you think are worthy of mention. Uh, people may be curious as to why they were not on the short list. Can I ask you to quickly run down those candidates? Kenneth Arrow, Paul Samuelson, Gary Becker, Joseph Schumpeter. Oh, who's the fifth? Remind me. Marshall. And Alfred Marshall. Yeah. Keynes dismissed Marshall. Marshall's too narrow. Gary Becker is great. I knew him a bit too. But it's just hard to put him ahead of Milton Friedman. Schumpeter, one of the top social thinkers. I mean, he's a bit like Mill, but as a narrow economist, he's not quite there. Uh, Kenneth Arrow, maybe I should have upgraded to the top tier. He's very, very impressive. Uh, I probably should have covered him more. He didn't really do macro or empirical work, so I can't name him as GOAT. Uh, but he was one of the smart, maybe he's the most brilliant economist ever and a very deep thinker. Paul Samuelson, too combative, wrong on too many things. He thought Soviet growth was going fine. He thought wage and price controls from Nixon were fine. He was just too wrong and uh, not flexible enough as a thinker. Well, Tyler, it's a great book and a discussion about the ideas, the personalities involved, and I recommend it highly for that. But there's also another element to it that I want to discuss in the time we have remaining, which is the fact that this is an interactive, interactive book written with ChatGPT. How and why did you do that? Well, to be clear, I wrote the whole book. GPT wrote none of the book, zero. But what GPT can do is answer questions about the book. So the book, so to speak, has been stuffed into GPT, and we built a bot. So if you don't want to read the chapter on Malthus and just want to ask, what does Tyler say about Malthus? Tell me in five paragraphs. GPT will do that. If you're curious, well, where might Paul Krugman disagree with Tyler on Keynes? You can ask GPT. GPT will give you a pretty good answer. Any question you have about the book, you want more factual detail on the Treaty of Versailles and what Keynes did there, which I only cover briefly, GPT will give you as much as you want. So this is the first book ever published in GPT-4, uh, and I'm very glad to have done that. I think within three years, a lot of people will be doing this. But I thought, you know, I should do it first. That's why the book is free, because it's just a thing online you access. You can just read it on your Kindle, you know, old school, forget about the AI. But if you want to interrogate the book for the first time ever, you can do that with the book. You rightly point out I misspoke. I said written with ChatGPT, and that could give the give the wrong impression. But I do wonder how this technology might evolve. Is it possible that in five or ten or fifty years I could ask ChatGPT or GPT, whatever number would be around then, or whatever replacement? Could you write a book for me by Tyler Cowen about the greatest economists of all time? And that without any direct input from you, it could sort of synthesize all of your public record and, and create such a book just for me. I would say in five years that would be possible, not 50. Now, exactly how good it will be, I'm not sure, but it will be better than a lot of books. It won't be terrible. Does that mean authors are going to become redundant in some sense? Well, keep in mind, the way you construct that exercise, it's reading what I've written already, and it has to rely on that. So I still have a role in this kind of co-authored imaginary work. Uh, I do say this, for my career future, I plan on making more public appearances and giving more talks in person and live and expressing, quote unquote, my charisma more. And that's to compete against the AI. So 
I'm ready to compete with it. I realize I have to. Most people out there, they're still asleep. They're in a fog. Uh, I think I'll do better because I'm aware of the challenge that lies before us. What's the response been like to this format? Uh, the book people love. A lot of people have told me it's their favorite book by me because it didn't have to go through all these filters where I make it stupider for different sorts of audiences, whether academic or public. Using the GPT bot, I'd say half the people love it and half the people hate it. A lot of people are just like, this is a bother. It takes a few seconds to give you an answer. Or they'll say, I just want the, the Tyler in this book. And that's fine. You don't have to use the AI. And other people are, this is fantastic. I can ask it all these questions. I think that's inevitable. But definitely a lot of people don't like it. And that's to be expected. And it will get better. So as GPTs and other models get better, I will upgrade the software behind this book. And it will give you better answers and be somewhat quicker and improve in all sorts of ways. So this is just step one, right? That's important to keep in mind. Absolutely. One of the future steps that I'm really interested in is the idea that the audio book will be an IA-generated version of your voice, as I understand it. That was something I had no idea was even on the horizon. Can you tell us a little bit about how that is possible and how that will work? We're working on that now. So we have an AI-generated sample of my voice. I thought it wasn't good enough. Uh, we're working on improvements. I think within a few months we will have this. And it will not exactly sound like me, but if you weren't thinking, trying to find a difference, you would think it's me, is where I think we'll end up, not in a year's time, but say in three months' time. And the book will be read by this service, whatever you would call it. There's also the question of where it places emotional stress. So sounding like me is one thing. But say when I talk about, you know, Keynes being anti-Semitic, like the tone of how that's read should change in an appropriate manner. Uh, will the GPT do that well? I'm not yet sure. So there's still some things to work on, but it is just around the corner. I find that fascinating. More generally, uh, there's a lot of discussion among my friends who are professors about the effects, effects of AI on learning and in universities. What are views on how AI will shape learning in the years to come? Well, I'm teaching a history of economic thought class starting in a, a week or two. Uh, two weeks, actually. And uh, all the students get GOAT for free, and they'll be using the bot. And on the class syllabus, they're required to subscribe to ChatGPT and pay the $20 a month. And they're going to use perplexity.ai and also use a service called Find, P-H-I-N-D, as a way of analyzing texts and learning about history and putting together the pieces. And that's just education from now on. I mean, it's there. People are using it. It's the faculty who are behind. Students are way ahead. Uh, I want to be there on the frontier, and we're going to do this. Does this lead to a world in which students just submit essays written by AI and don't do the work themselves? They can't do that yet. I think in the future, uh, homework will dwindle seriously for this reason, and you will test people in class, and then you'll know it's by them. I don't really trust honor codes enough to do it the other way. So we will adjust, and that's how we'll adjust. Is that feasible uh, at universities with the scale, the number of students and the size of classes they have to do all the testing in class? Well, it's how universities used to do things. So you may need a big lecture hall, 
My school has some big lecture halls. Now, the total demand for big lecture halls might go up. We can build more if we have to. So I think we'll manage. I think the real problem is students in some ways becoming lazy because you can check the AI rather than working things out yourself. And that can be useful if done judiciously, but you don't become a great chess player by always asking the computer, right? So you've got to know what's too much, and that's hard. Wonderful. We are nearing the end of our time here, Tyler. We always like to leave some time at the end for the guest to have the last word. I think we've covered the issue of the goat in economics well. I'm really interested in your ideas about AI. I wonder if you can leave us with some parting thoughts. What is it that people may be getting wrong in their sort of common thinking about AI? And what are things that all of us should be doing to try and stay up to speed on this? A lot of people just use AI services quickly and casually. They treat it like Google or Wikipedia. They don't really know how to use it, how to work it, and they go away disillusioned. Uh, They're missing out on one of the biggest advances in human history. This is going to change many, many things, possibly everything. It will happen at a slower rate than many of its partisans think because the human bottlenecks are severe. But it will change the nonprofit world you and I operate in. It will change book publishing. It will change media. It will change how you read the Internet. It will change policy, regulation. Right now, there's people working with large language models to read regulatory codes, measure them, analyze them, run statistics against them, help people, you know, write the permit applications to get things built, deliver regulatory comments that are at least as smart as what humans would write. All this is happening now. This is not hypothetical. It just hasn't quite hit mass impact yet, but it's on its way. It's happening right now. Be aware, be alert, don't be behind. One final question. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the long-term impact of AI? Uh, Mostly optimistic, but look, there's a lot of uncertainty. We'll see. To mix dynamic technologies with sclerotic institutions, that's always going to be problematic, and we're going to face that problem too. I guess today's been Tyler Cowan. Tyler, thanks for joining me on The Curious Task. My pleasure. Thank you. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Sabine Alchidiak and Eric Sege. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Valpenfjord. You should check out his music online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. I'm Matt Bufton. Thanks again for joining us on The Curious Task.